Our scripture lesson for today is from the 145th Psalm, Psalm 145. Our theme is daily worship. Jesus told us to take up the cross daily and follow him. The author of Hebrews urges on us the necessity of encouraging and exhorting one another daily, as long as it is called today. And then, of course, we are to meditate in the Word and pray on a daily basis. And here in the first two verses of Psalm 145, David affirms the reality of future eternal praise, and he commits himself to praying every day. Let's read the first two verses. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. What's interesting if, is if you're looking at a Bible, there is a title for this psalm printed just above those two verses. It is crucial that you understand most of the titles in the book of Psalms actually are to be regarded as Scripture. They are an inspired part of the psalm. This particular psalm is titled, A Psalm of Praise of David. David wrote 75 of the 150 psalms. Uh, but this psalm itself, titled A Psalm of Praise, is actually pure praise. There, are, there is no confession of sin in this psalm. There are no petitions asking God for certain things in this psalm. The entire psalm drips, every sentence in it drips with praise. What is especially noteworthy are the various words the psalmist uses to refer to what we call worship. He says that we are to extol God. We are to praise Him, to exalt Him. Later in the psalm, we are to speak forth His praises. We are to celebrate Him. And there's even a reference that tells us that we are to joyfully sing. So this is a psalm designed to encourage our daily worship. Let's think about this word worship for a moment. The word worship means to speak about God's worth, his value. To speak the truth about God to God is an act of worship. You might simply define worship like this. Worship is praising God for his attributes and for his acts. In other words, we are worshiping God when we celebrate with reverence and joy. We express to God who He is, what He has done, and what He continues to do. Putting those few sentences together, this is what worship is. Worship is praising God for who He is, His attributes, which of course include His holiness, his faithfulness, his sovereignty, his wrath, 
his love, his almightiness, and so on. Those are qualities of God, characteristics, attributes of God, sometimes referred to as the perfections of God. Then we come to his acts, his mighty acts, which of course include the fact that God created the world. Not only did God bring creation into existence out of nothing, he sustains the whole world and all that is in the world in being. He is both the creator and the sustainer of all of creation. Concerning his works, the most significant work that he has ever done is that he has provided us salvation through the sacrifice and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, he promised that salvation. And in the New Testament, he fulfilled that promise so that we can be forgiven of our sins and redeemed and saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. We are also taught to call God our Father, and that supplies a whole list of the various works he does for us. As a father, he cares for us, he teaches us, he disciplines us, he provides for us, and it's just a long list. So what I'm trying to illustrate here is that worship really is praising God for his glorious attributes and adoring and praising God for his great, for his mighty acts. Now with that definition in mind, what we see in this psalm is that David commits what we might call a holy resolve. He makes a deeply personal choice that he will live a life of praise, that his ambition is to praise God every day because he wants to live a worship-saturated life. It's crucial to understand that David actually gives us the reason why he is passionate about praising God each day. And it is the fact that he knows there is a day coming when he will be in the presence of God and through all eternity, forever and ever, David will worship God. We read those two verses again. I will exalt you, my God and King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you. You and I will extol your name forever and ever. There is another and future world where we will meet God. We will enjoy living in his presence and we will worship him with joy and humility and reverence. You know, this is actually confirmed in the New Testament book of Revelation. There are at least three scenes in that wonderful final book of the Bible where all the heavenly hosts are called into the presence of God for the purpose of worship. We're told there'll be people from every tribe and language and kindred and nation. All the redeemed of all the ages will be there. God himself will be the focus of heaven's high praise. And the Lord Jesus Christ will appear as a lamb standing though the lamb had been slain. It is a testimony to his crucifixion and resurrection. And the point is, all of heaven will rejoice and praise God and give him glory and honor and adoration forever. And so David says, for that particular reason, I'm going to get started now. 
every day in anticipation of eternity will be a day of praise for me. Charles Spurgeon once simply said, praise is the rehearsal of our eternal song. And we are to be a people who worship God every day. And so I want us to survey this whole psalm and get a feel for what pure praise looks like and what it sounds like. And the first thing I want us to think about is this. David's psalm of praise is filled with great thoughts about God. Depending on how you count, there are at least 20 attributes of God in this psalm. Let's just look at some of them. In verse 3, we read, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom the greatness of God. Verse 5, they speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works, the works of God, the majesty of God. Then we get to verse 7, they celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. What a, a cluster of redemptive attributes of God. Then you get to verse 11. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might. Verse 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. Again, verse 13, the Lord is trustworthy in all his promises and faithful in all that he does. Verse 20 and 21, the Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. He's a just God, a, a God of wrath. And then verse 21, my mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever. I'm just showing you a sample here. All of these Rich attributes of God celebrated, which proves the point that this psalm is filled with um, the words of a man who knows God. He knows the truth about God. He's familiar with the attributes and acts of God. And so his mind, his heart is filled with great thoughts of God. Here is what is important here. Praise requires great thoughts of God, and great thoughts of God fuel our praise, our worship. Writing a little over a hundred years ago, William Plummer put it this way, nothing has a more pernicious effect on character than low thoughts of God. Unless we have great thoughts of God, our thoughts of sin will be low, our sense of obedience will be feeble, and our praise dull. That's got a bit of sting to it, doesn't it? If we don't think seriously and deeply about God, if we have, have no intensity, no drive to get to know Him better, feeble obedience, 
boring praise, lukewarm towards sin. You see, knowing God affects every aspect of your life and mine, and we're called to have great thoughts of God. It was the godly Puritan Stephen Charnock who put it like this, it is impossible to honor God as we ought unless we know him as he is. That's worth repeating. It is impossible to honor God as we ought, to, to love him and worship him as we ought until we truly know him as he is revealed to us in the scriptures. Well, how do we come to know God better? Well, the answer is we think seriously and deeply about him as we ponder the pages of Holy Scripture, as we look at and think deeply about the, the, the God-given and, scripture, and scripturated revelation of who, who he is. But let me show you this in verse 5. This is what the verse says. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. Now listen to this. And I will meditate on your wonderful work. You read this psalm and this long list of the attributes and activities of God, you know he's meditated on God. You know he knows God. And here he's saying, I meditate on him. I think seriously and deeply about who he is and what he's done and what he continues to do. You know, there's a simple way to accomplish getting to know God better and having great thoughts of God fixed into your mind. And that is every time you read your Bible, Whatever passage you may be reading, it is always right to ask this question first. What does it teach me about God? There's not a passage in the whole Bible that doesn't teach you something about God. Even the book of Esther, by the way. I read the book of Esther this week. You should read the book of Esther. It never mentions God. Never mentions the Lord. His name's not there. Every chapter is filled with knowledge of who God is and what his character is like, even though the word isn't mentioned there. What does this teach me about my God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? So again, praise requires great thoughts about God, and great thoughts of God fuel our praise. Now it brings us to kind of a second heading that we ought to think about maybe a little more deeply as we move into the psalm. David's psalm of praise encourages a number of things. First of all, Psalm 145 encourages us to consider the greatness of God, his unsearchable greatness. Look at verse 3 again. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness, no one can fathom it. Uh, the ESV, it's, it's unsearchable. It's beyond our capacity to fully grasp how great God actually is. This is referring to the inexhaustibility of God. That we as finite creatures can never fully grasp or contain the infinite majesty of the greatness of God himself. And it is a truth about God that is designed to humble us deeply before him. Let me see if I can give you a few illustrations of the greatness of God. One person has suggested you take the largest piece of paper that you can possibly find. 
You take a pencil and you put a small dot on that paper. That little dot represents the maximum of what we can know about an infinitely great God. Or you think about John Calvin's illustration in his Institutes, where he's talking about the inexhaustibility of God. You, you can't exhaust him. You can't reduce him to bite-sized management. And Calvin said, you know, when you think about it, God's greatness is like him stooping to communicate truth to us. It's like a nurse lisping to an infant. Now, there's an easier way to understand that. It's like a mother cooing to her newborn baby. It's the best he can do because of our finite sinfulness. He stoops to communicate to us, but his greatness is beyond our capacity to fully grasp. A few years ago, I was sitting on the beach, and I noticed two uh, strong-looking young men hauled a canoe out into the ocean, and they got over the waves breaking upon the shore. And they got into this canoe and paddled for their life. And I began to think, oh, they're going out to explore the ocean. They're going out to see its greatness. They were out there in that canoe for three hours and never got out of my eyesight. The last thing they did was exhaust the greatness of the ocean. I'm trying to make you understand that his greatness is something that we feel as much as know about. He is infinitely great. And we should be humble in his presence and happy in his presence and trusting in his presence. Now, secondly, David's song of praise encourages us to praise him for his abundant goodness and for his rich love. We see this in um, verse, verse 7 and 8. They celebrate your abundant goodness. There's no scarcity when it comes to the goodness of God. He, his, his goodness is abundant goodness. Uh, and we joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, uh, slow to anger, Rich in love. Press all of those words together and you have the language of redemption. You have the language of God saving people. Because he's slow to anger, which means he's incredibly patient. And patience in both the Old and New Testament comes from God to give us significant time to repent. And he's gracious, he's compassionate, he has saving pity on us, is what the word means. Or he's merciful. He is good to those he saves. It's interesting that he refers here to love in, in the NIV as he is rich in love. He has an abundance of love. It, it's a love that never goes away. And for that reason, the ESV reads his steadfast love abounds forever. You know, it's interesting, if you go to the prayer at the end of Ephesians 3, there Paul is, is praying that Christian people will grasp 
the love of Christ. And you remember how he says it, that you would grasp how long and how wide and how high and how deep is the, the love of Christ. And then he adds this phrase, this love that surpasses knowledge. What an interesting thing to say. I pray that you grasp, that you contain, that, that you understand the, the amazing love of Christ. That surpasses knowledge. A love that you can never plumb the depths of. You can never reach the heights of. It's always extending outward. In other words, his love is just as unfathomable as is his greatness. It's a love that will not let us go. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Jesus Christ our Lord. While the third idea in this psalm is that we are to praise God for his eternal reign, for his glorious kingdom. And we see this in the verses as well. They tell of the glory, this is verse, looks like verse 11. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures through all generations. The New Testament says he gives to his people an unshakable kingdom. There's no threat that it will ever be toppled or crumbled. Kingdoms come and go. Jesus reigns forever as the king. You know, uh, there's a story, it's a true story of Voltaire, the French writer, one day he was sitting in a chair and he was kind of talking to some of those listening to his lecture. And he said this, within 100 years of my life, there will be no Bible on earth. There'll be no Christianity on earth. There'll, there'll be no reign of God. That was his prophecy, 100 years after I died. He said that almost 300 years ago. Well, uh, a few years back, there was a Baptist minister. It had to be a Baptist. Uh, they're the best, you know. And, and anyway, this Baptist minister was walking through this museum, and, and, and the um, leader of the tour said, this is Voltaire's chair. This is the very chair that, that uh, he sat in and announced his prophecy that the only place where you could go see a Bible in a hundred years would be a museum. And the Baptist minister jumped over the rail and sat in Voltaire's chair. And he began to sing, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. Its kingdom stretches from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. Even if the moon goes away, Jesus reigns forever and ever and ever and ever. And he is already past Voltaire's threat. It's an eternal kingdom where we will know and love and worship and serve God with unsinning, joy-ravished lives. That's the third thing here. Then the fourth is we are to praise God for His continuous, for His always-enduring, never-ending faithfulness. We see this in the middle of verse 13. The Lord is trustworthy in all He promises and faithful in all He 
does. And then verse 17 reads, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all that he does. God never alters a promise that his lips have uttered. He never enters into a covenant that he will not make good. No one ever trusted God in vain because there is in the nature of God a constancy, a consistency that makes him utterly reliable. And all his promises will be kept. Everyone. Great is his faithfulness. So that's just a survey of, of four of the attributes of God. And there are at least 16 more in this psalm. But I want to close by pointing this thing out here. David's song of praise ends with his resolve to worship God. It's, it ends the way it starts because he knows he will worship him forever. And so verse 21 reads, My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever. And ever. Take up his cross daily to follow him. Encourage one another daily, lest you be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The verse from last week. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will be prosperous and successful. Prosperous and successful in living for him and loving him. And worshiping him. Day by day by day. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your, for your goodness and your mercy to us. How great and, and glorious you are. Um, help us to be a people who cultivate great thoughts about you fixing great truths about you in our minds so that it fuels our daily worship. Lord, once again, for these young folks who are going to life in the midst of hopefully much fun that they will have, I want to pray for them Psalm 8611, where that you would teach them your ways that they may walk in your truth and that you would give them undivided hearts that they may fear your name and make them to know, Lord, just how much their church family loves them and is committed to them. In Jesus' name, amen.